Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's roundtable. This week, live from New York. Yep, at the end of a wild week, Bernie Sanders squeaks out a win over Pete Buttigieg in New Hampshire, but Amy Klobuchar surprises everybody with a strong third-place finish, and former frontrunners Elizabeth Warren and Joe, and Joe Biden come in fourth and fifth. Now it's on to Nevada, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday, where anything could happen, or is it already locked in for Bernie Sanders? Meanwhile, in Washington, Donald Trump again defies the rule of law by intervening through his attorney general in what punishment should be handed out to convicted felon Roger Stone. And then Bill Barr surprises everybody by saying enough is enough. Well, here to try to make some sense of it all, two of New York's fearless and already exhausted political reporters Gabe Benedetti joins us from New York Magazine, national correspondent. Hello, Gabe. Hey there. Good to see you in your home territory. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm, this exhaustion is a new thing for the record. It's, it's been ongoing since, what, 2013 or so. <laughs> it's a state of affairs, right, right, in your job. And uh, Gregory Krieg from CNN, political correspondent for CNN. Both of you just back from New Hampshire. Greg, it's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, happy Valentine's Day. Let's just start right in. You were both in New Hampshire, both tromping around, following all the candidates. Uh, unpack it for us. What uh, what happened, Gre- uh, Gabe? Let's start with you. And did Iowa really influence what happened in New Hampshire? Well, as to the second question, there's no doubt about that. And I think a big part of that, before we dive into what the individual results actually were, you know, every time uh, Greg or I or any reporter has gone to an event for basically any candidate other than Bernie Sanders over the last two years, the first thing on their mind has always been who is the most electable candidate, right? We've heard this a million different times. And, and by the way, a lot of Bernie voters have said this too, but in different terms often. So when you come from Iowa, where one, there's a muddle of results, but one of the only results that we know for sure is that Joe Biden did not do well, that puts an enormous dent in his electability, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, facade that he's been talking about nonstop. So I think it's there's no doubt that that his poor showing in Iowa fed into this poor sh- even poorer showing in New Hampshire. And that, to me, was one of the big headlines here. And, you know, you have other candidates essentially trying to claim that mantle. That's why you saw Pete Buttigieg have a little bit of a surge. That's why Amy Klobuchar was able to climb up into third place. And by the way, the fact that Elizabeth Warren was essentially not talked about at all post-Iowa because she came in third and the stories were uh, there were three stories. One was Iowa's a mess. Two is Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg tied. And the third story was Joe Biden's a disaster. There was little room for people to pay attention to Elizabeth Warren. And the lack of media attention, I think, fed into her slide down the polls in New Hampshire. Obviously, she finished fourth, which is a pretty uh, 
I don't know if we can say devastating, but definitely disappointing showing for her in, right. the, in the next state over. Uh, uh, and, Greg, this was her home territory. As well, well, a lot but, of people pointed out. I mean, she might as well have been running in Massachusetts. Right? I, I always kind of laughed at that point because, you know, it, it, usually it would be cast in comparison to Bernie. Right. And, obviously, New Hampshire is a lot more like Vermont. Um, and the folks in New Hampshire have known Bernie, I mean, some of them, personally for a long time. So I, I think he definitely had a bigger advantage. But I, but I, to, to Gabe's point, to your point, uh, her poor showing in Iowa, where a lot of people thought she had the best ground game, you know, she had been talked up a lot, uh, right. um, definitely created this weird dynamic. And similarly with Biden, so you ended up having the situation in New Hampshire where you had, you know, I think what we described in the story is like kind of these accidental rivals yes. in, um, in Pete and Bernie. And, and it was kind of interesting watching them grappling with each other because you could, you know, for, for this whole campaign, um, you know, Sanders has been, to the extent that he's attacked someone, he's gone after Biden. You know, that was, that was his last month talking about Biden. And um, in Iowa, the dynamic was that um, Warren and Buttigieg were kind of jockeying for these college, uh, right. I'm, I'm sorry, the college educated voters. And then, so both of them probably had more success in knocking off their perceived rival initially and then they were kind of going back and forth with each other in in an odd way like Buttigieg was kind of the latest stand-in for the the corporate establishment that Bernie wants to topple and for um on, on the other half of this it just created an odd dynamic and you kind of felt like Buttigieg wasn't quite prepared to go after Bernie I mean they did the things that you do when you're running against someone you accuse them of this or that but I, I don't think he was ready for that at this point right away. And then right. that kind of opens the lane for Amy. Right. So it seems to me from the beginning that the first kind of um, thing that the Democratic Party had to sort out was are they going to go real left or right. are they going to go center left, sure. right, or progressive, moderate, whatever you want to call it. Elizabeth Warren had to win that left lane, right, to begin with, um, and she didn't. And, and can she still, or have we reached well, a point where at least the left lane is decided it's going to be Bernie versus somebody else? I, I think, well, t there are many different points here. And one of the big points that I think we should point out is if we're going to agree that this, this primary is going to essentially come down to this left versus center left fight, uh, we have to acknowledge that while Bernie Sanders has been winning these early primaries are performing quite well, it's with a plurality, and he's getting swamped overall by the moderate, the so-called moderate vote. However, the question about Elizabeth no, Warren no, is— good point. I mean, yeah. Amy and Pete Buttigieg both together right. got a lot more votes than Bernie Sanders Precisely. did. Precisely. Right. Now, that's not to say that there's not room for him to expand or that you know Elizabeth right. Warren is obviously on the left as well, and there are other candidates out there. But let's just stipulate that for a second. However, the question about Elizabeth Warren's overall strategy here is, is I think, one that— is maybe end up being one of the defining questions of this primary when all is said and done. If you look over the course of this campaign, she started by clearly trying to go for that left lane with Bernie Sanders. It became clear pretty early on, though, that she wasn't going to be able to claim it from him. So, it, so she was trying to edge in on it and see how much of it she could take over. However, when there was this, essentially the fiasco that I think a lot of people think ultimately will have been the thing that tanked her campaign if she doesn't win this thing, the Medicare for all pay for question uh, that she got mired in, uh, that really raised a lot of questions and raised questions of her credibility among the hard left. So what you see now is essentially, although they won't you know, frame it this way, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Greg, because you've been covering this very closely, but her you know, slight course shift to try and not be 
the candidate of the left, although she never explicitly said she was the candidate of the left, but to now try and be the candidate of unity because she's saying these right. lefties like me, these centrists like me. She doesn't say this in you know so many words, but now she's trying to say, listen, you may be having this ideological fight now, but give it a few weeks, give it a few months, and after you've all, you're all done tearing each other apart, I'll be standing there and you can all agree to like me. The problem, of course, is when you call yourself everyone's second choice, you have to actually win somewhere. Well, let me just cut to the chase here. Sure. Right? We're two states down, as she pointed out yeah. Tuesday night. 55 states and territories to go, as she pointed out. Is she done? Can she recover? Greg? Yeah, you know what? I would, would um, hesitate to rule anyone out this year, uh, and, I, and I would include Biden in there. But but to the, the specific question of Warren, and I, and I think Gabe was getting at this, I mean, there's also an issue w w when you explicitly uh, kind of sell yourself as the unity candidate is by definition, um, you're saying that the other people can't do that, right. um, which is not very unifying. Um, so so we had this odd dynamic on um, Tuesday night where, or rather, so Tuesday during the day, her campaign ma manager puts out a memo, um, again, warning against the media narrative, this and that, making the, the fair point that we are only, whatever, a couple percentage points in delegate-wise to this race, but also including a portion where he goes line by line about why each of the other candidates, front-running candidates, are right. e either doomed or hobbled or what have you. Um, and then that night, you know, you know, to her credit, I think she sticks around uh, New Hampshire to, to to give a speech to, to the folks there, and she gives, I think, a pretty compelling case against factionalism. Um, so you kind of have these kind of cross currents, even within her own campaign, where it's we want to be the unity yeah. candidate, we want everybody to come together, no factionalism, but also here's this memo from my well, campaign manager saying why these guys are well, not going to win. And I think a really important piece of that, by the way, is that it's fine, it's fine, all fine and good to talk about this in these grand terms, but if you look at the nitty-gritty of that memo, the ultimate point that it was making, and this is a memo that was quite extraordinary, actually, because it's so out of the ordinary for her campaign to do something like this, to give us a, a look inside, the point of it was we still have the best chance of winning because we're going to win all these delegates in all these places. Now, it's really hard to square that with three hours later winning zero delegates in New Hampshire, a state that she was, by the way, a front runner, if not the front runner in for quite some time. Obviously, Bernie was, was there, too. All right. So you say that Elizabeth Warren, you would not count her out. But we've got to say for now, at least, Bernie ha has, that, has that left lane. But yeah. you also said not, don't count Joe Biden out. Gabe, do you agree? Is Joe? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have written Joe Biden's obituary, right? But, well, if, and and let's just say political for, for good, right? For good reason, potentially. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, his campaign is very, very, very focused on, uh, well, not focused on, but reliant on money from big donors, and you need to get that money in order to keep going. And there's nothing that big donors hate more than candidates who lose. And if you lose big and you know do well below your expectations, you're going to run out of money pretty quickly, and you need money to run these campaigns. That said, Joe Biden was here in New York last night raising a ton of money from Wall Street executives who were basically saying, you know, listening to his case, which is, okay, Iowa and New Hampshire are done now. Let's focus on these much more diverse states. He has a case to, to make there. We haven't seen polling in these places in a long time. And I think that's a really important point because those it's very easy for us to assume that the voters in Las Vegas and in Columbia and in Charleston are saying, you know, well, that guy's, that guy's done and dusted. But the truth is, He's leading most, if not all, polls up until Iowa of these places. So let, let's wait and see. It's going to be very, very difficult for him to, to climb back here. But the truth is, 
it is definitely the case that Iowa and New Hampshire are not demographically representative of the rest of the country, and Joe Biden does much better with these other demographics. So, uh, Greg, what is your take? Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden. Which one is going to be the centrist, center-left candidate? I mean, uh, why don't I do this? Because I, I will be the first to confess I have no idea. So, I'll, 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 by the way, let me briefly. I think we should all be honest. Today, nobody knows who's going to be the nominee. Would yeah, you agree? Right. I know less than I did a few weeks ago. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I've, I, I become ever more confused every single day, but that might not have anything to do with. Uh, in any <laughs> event, um, no. I, I, so, uh, the case for each of the three, I think, you know, I, to be overly simplistic, obviously, um, you know, Klobuchar. She has momentum. That is a real thing. She is very appealing. She wins. There are a lot of voters, um, whatever their ideology, or maybe not super ideological, who understandably want to go back against Trump with a female candidate. And and certainly, I don't think anyone, whatever you think of Klobuchar, uh, thinks that she would wilt in that situation or anything, any type of, you know, kind of stereotypical worry um, that someone might have about a candidate. So I, I think and it's there. Obviously, there's an issue of, with her about staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she does not have an operation really outside of these early states, and they're going to have to get that together. Um, for for um, Buttigieg, a lot of I think there's a lot of appeal there in the suburbs, and obviously we know in 2018 that was where the Democratic Party got its muscle back. Um, and I think you know that's a really savvy campaign. I think um, you know. Mayor Pete is, is young. He looks it, but there th- that is a grizzly campaign. Um, they know what they're doing. They got up on that stage in Iowa that night, and you might like it, you might not, but they declared victory and yeah. got those you know that fundraising in. Very and, impressive campaign. And, and then fi- and with Biden, it, it's like Gabe said. You know, he is kind of the opposite. You know, or he doesn't have maybe the the questions that Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg, Buttigieg have going into these next Tuesday, because n- neither Buttigieg or Klobuchar have that type of support for minority communities, yeah. and, and Biden does. And can I just say that the real answer to this, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun on this, but we're sitting in New York, the answer to this might be Michael Bloomberg, whether we like it or not. Uh, I was coming to him next. Well, yeah. sorry for sorry no, for no, uh, no, but jumping it, ahead here. No, he is a very real factor. Personally, I sort of dismissed him in the beginning right. as a kind of a celebrity candidate with too much money and didn't know what to do with it. But I can't tell you anecdotally, how many Democrats have told me in the last week or so, I'm going with Bloomberg. Yeah. Well, I, I think at the end of the day... Giving we, up on the current field and going with the guy who's outside the current field. We can't dismiss the fact uh, that he's spending more money than anyone has ever seen in politics, ever. Uh, simply because he's outspending everyone, and we already see what it, what the results are. I mean, he's already get got to third place in many national polls. He's only been in this race for three months. He's not been on a debate stage. No one's voted for him. Well, actually, he got 4,000 write-in votes in New Hampshire, which is extraordinary. Um, there's reason to believe that this guy's in this for the long haul. He said he is. He has more money than anyone knows what to do with or has ever seen before. And by the way, if he decides in a few weeks that he doesn't want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee and it looks like Bernie's running away with this and he decides to turn this this you know money flood into negative advertising that could very well do Bernie in not predicting that obviously but just I, I say that because we've never seen this before no one knows what two billion dollars of negative ads looks like well certainly Greg though the there's no no major political party would ever nominate a New York billionaire who has a history of making racist statements um, I, I, I'll put it this way with Bloomberg. I, I think, I mean, I think Gabe covered the 
the just kind of, well, there you go, unprecedented nature of what he's doing in a different way, obviously, than Trump with regard to the money. Um, I think I think two, I, I take away two things from his rise, if we can call it that. One is that um, you have Democrats who are just in a constant clutch of panic and they look at the candidates that they know and that they've been learning about for a year and they, they have this or that worry. So a new person comes in and then a new person comes in and right. a new person comes in. And obviously this one was able to come in with a lot of money. And, and so I, I, th- I think the interest, the gravitational, those folks that you speak to are, I think probably reacting more to their, cons- and I think that was your point, you know, more to their concerns about the current field than, right. um, you know, their some affection for Bloomberg. Right. And I, I think the interesting thing also about Bloomberg is three of us here, again, sitting in New York, who remember him being mayor is, you know, I find it amusing. And I imagine I kind of feel like reporters, maybe in other states, when when we all parachute in, um, learning about the local uh, candidates and officials, I I think for the moment, at least, though, um, not to be overly harsh here, I think there's a kind of Wizard of Oz vibe around Bloomberg, where people have not seen him, they've seen the commercials, they've seen this, that they've heard, they've heard this and that about him. I think it'll be really interesting to when he's actually forced to, you know, sit on a deba- debate right. stage. But more than that, you know, really hold rallies. I think people will want to see him eventually, I think. Will he be in the next debate? Well, we don't know yet. We'll find out in the next few hours, I think. It seems entirely likely, but it's not yet confirmed. Uh, he won't be in the next one, but it would be the one after that, I believe. Or or I, potentially the next one. Well, we don't know, I guess. The, the, right. r- the rules change so often. Yes, that's right. But there's a chance. The, the question, of course, is whether he would go because he has said out loud that he wants to, but there's reason to believe based on reporting, based on his past, that he would not want to. And, and I think, by the way, skipping these early states, a, as Greg said, allows him to jump past some of this panic that, that a lot of voters are feeling because look at Joe Biden. People are panicking about Joe Biden now because he didn't do well in these first two states, which, as I said earlier, are not demographically representative at all. Now there's a lot of worry about Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar because never in their lives have they shown an ability to win over non-white voters as we're about to see voting in Nevada and South Carolina. No one is having these concerns about Mike right. Bloomberg right now because he's not, you know, no one's voting for him. But, but there's another slice of that panic, which is they see that it could be Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And there are a lot of moderates who are freaked out yeah. that, 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 that Bernie either would not be able to win or would take the country too, too far left. Again... I keep seeing parallels in 2016. It's not an exact parallel, but I remember all the talk about Donald Trump in 2016. Look, he's far too extreme. He could never get the nomination. And if he ever got the nomination, he could never win the White House. And people are now saying the same thing about Bernie Sanders. A lot of Democrats are saying the same thing. Um, And so how do you explain that fear almost among a lot of Democrats of about Bernie Sanders. I mean, I mean, we could talk for hours about why why they're concerned about him. But but I I, I think the interesting thing that'll happen over the next few weeks is so let's say for argument's sake Bernie wins Nevada and you know comes second uh, in, in in South Carolina, um, which I think you know everyone on that campaign would sign their life over for right now. Um, I, I and, and and this might sound funny coming from someone who's covered Sanders and has heard him say a million times list the different industries that are aligned against him right. but I'm not sure that we and even that campaign have a full understanding of of the barrage that's co- that's coming against them I mean I mean we can talk about those industries and, and they, they have run ads against him or against you know some of his major political uh, policy platforms 
but I think it's only getting started. And, and you see, it's just like every few days, a different group. You know, you've had you've had the uh, political arm of that uh, Democratic Majority for Israel running ads, and they're going to run an ad again in Nevada starting today. Um, I don't think people quite comprehend how intense that will get. And and it's interesting. You mean uh, the anti-Bernie? The anti-Bernie the- move. Yes. Um, and and it, it again, I don't think it's going to register as maybe one getting lining up behind a specific candidate, which to your point about a parallel, but they don't have to do that. If they if they they're taking chunks out of him here and there, um, it's it's really close. And the the DMFI guys said that they took credit for his not winning outright in Iowa because they're Be- ad. Before we jump in, Gabe, just uh, uh, two little factors. One is that the Culinary Union in in Nevada, mm-hmm. which is the the biggest political force in Nevada for sure. Uh, has uh, announced that they are not going to endorse at all. Right, which in many ways is a rebuke of Joe Biden more than anything else. Uh, he probably had more of a chance to get that endorsement than anyone else, yes. and they decide not to go there. Uh, they're not also not happy with Bernie. Uh, they're certainly not happy with Bernie. Right. Bernie. Uh, but I've seen with the commentariat, you know, Tom Friedman, the columnist, endorsing Michael Bloomberg and saying part of the reason is he's worried about Bernie Sanders. Nick Kristoff in the New York Times uh, this week, citing a Gallup poll, which I found interesting, if you believe this Gallup poll, that 93% of Democrats say they would vote for a woman, 96% they would vote for a black candidate, 69% say they'd have a problem voting for anybody over 70, and 45% only say that they would vote for a socialist. Uh, These numbers are striking. But what I will say, having been on the ground quite a lot over the last few years, as Greg has as well, you know, reporting on this stuff, I think it's very important that we draw a distinction between the, uh, the the objection that a lot of Republicans had to Donald Trump and the objection that a lot of Democrats have to Bernie Sanders. Because when we talk to voters, the most important thing that I keep hearing from people is the only thing that matters is getting Trump out of office. And I think that there is a wall between what's likely to be a massive corporate resistance to Bernie Sanders, which is a very real thing, and voter resistance to Bernie Sanders, which I think is real, but not as significant as it was to Donald Trump. Uh, There are a lot of voters in the real world who, because Bernie Sanders has been out there for the last five years, basically nonstop, who basically regard him as, yeah, far left, but basically a far left Democrat and not some, you know, Mm -hmm. communist coming out of nowhere as the Republicans like to paint him. Donald Trump was a different animal altogether, and the the objection that a lot of people had to Donald Trump was a temperamental one, a moral one. It was not necessarily always a political one. And at the end of the day, a lot of Republicans came around to him, but they had they had bigger, more visceral problems with him. A lot of Democrats kind of perceive in Bernie Sanders basically an extreme version of what they they might go for. Now, again, there are going to be there's going to be big corporate resistance, and a lot of that might be in the form of Michael Bloomberg himself, but. The reality is that most voters that you talk to on the ground who go to, you know, either even other campaign events for other candidates say, if it's Bernie Sanders, we'll vote for it. We may not love him, but we'll vote for him. So I think that at the end of the day, there is a massive difference in the shape of the Democratic Party and the posture towards the eventual nominee than what we've seen in the past. And the other big thing that often gets elided here in the comparisons to 2016 Republicans had a really hard time building a never-Trump movement in the primary because there was always another candidate that they thought was going to be the savior to <laughs> Donald Trump, right? But the problem was that obviously there were five different candidates running at all times against Trump, so he was able to win a plurality in every state. The difference is the rules. He won 
all the delegates in these states. It was a winner-take-all system, which meant that he had a much clearer path to winning outright than Bernie Sanders does, because on the Democratic side, it's a proportional allocation of delegates, which means even though he won just by a little bit in New Hampshire, he split the delegates with Pete Buttigieg. You know, we talk about Bernie Sanders as if he's a frontrunner right now, but he's actually a delegate or two behind Buttigieg right now, right? Obviously, only a tiny little portion of the delegates have been given out. But the point being, even if he wins 35% of the vote in every state from here on out and everyone else wins just 10%, it's not going to be a majority. Well, speaking now of delegates, Greg, and you've been uh, out there with uh, with Bernie Sanders, Uh, I think this point was first made by David Plouffe uh, with uh, Chris Hayes on MSNBC. Uh, but Bernie has picked it up now and has made it very much part of his campaign, which is, uh, and we'll hear him say it, that if he comes into the convention, not with enough to win, but with the plurality of all the delegates out there, you can't take it away from me. Here's Bernie. In general, uh, I think it is a fast statement to say that uh, it would be very divisive. I mean, you would have to the convention would have to explain to the American people, hey, candidate X, you know, kind of got the most votes and won the most delegates in the primary process, but we're not going to give him or her the nomination. I think that would be a very divisive uh, moment for the Democratic Party. So do you think uh, the convention delegates are going to buy that? I think um, Senator Sanders is right in one regard. It would indeed be quite divisive. Um, I I have a... (laughs) You, you know what? Um, I have a hard time imagining uh, someone who has a, a strong plurality losing it. Um, but obviously, I mean, and, and I think the the incredible irony is that in a weird way, um, they've almost, uh, they being the Sanders camp generally, and, and ha- the way that they help negotiate the DNC rules changes without going on a 10-minute explainer here is that if no one has a majority, there will be a second ballot and the dreaded superdelegates will emerge and they will, I think, be emboldened because they were um, disheartened, to put it mildly, by the rules changes. By losing their chance to vote on the first ballot. Exactly. And um, so, yeah, if you have, if Bernie comes in with a lead, so plurality, and then those, what is it, 771 superdelegates step in and effectively uh, hand the lead to someone else or or, you know, rever- and I would say effectively reverse the will of the voters there. Um, uh, yeah, divisive might be uh, an understatement uh, for once in Senator Sanders' career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely, but I think a large part of this, and Sanders would, would admit this, I think if you pressed him on it, it's the size of the plurality that really matters here. Yeah. You know, I was talking the other day to Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager right. in 2016, and the point that he made when we spoke was, if you actually look at the case of 2008 and 2012, or sorry, 2016, Barack Obama and then Hillary Clinton actually didn't hit the technical delegate threshold to win the nomination before the convention. And technically, they would have had to have a very potentially divisive vote at the convention. But what happened in both cases was the delegates agreed to vote by acclamation to unanimously nominate this person. So without going too far down the rabbit hole of, of, as Greg said, of all these rules, it's a possibility that if Bernie Sanders is far ahead, but has a pretty big plurality, that the delegates could say, listen, we understand we may not all love this guy, but it's going to rip apart the party if we try to overturn this. All that said, if it's pretty close, I think that maybe then we can actually have a conversation about what this so-called contested convention would look like, which is something that obviously gets brought up every four years. But this year looks more and more likely because 
no candidate has an obvious incentive to drop out, which I think is a really important point here. Mm -hmm. None of them are going to run out of money because they've decided that it's basically pretty cheap to run a campaign if you're just going to be you and a few aides flying around the country. Um, and if you're going to win delegates no matter what, why leave this race? And that's going to continue splitting it. Do we know before Nevada and before South Carolina who has the edge on Super Tuesday, 15 states including my big state of California? Is it? We can, can we say today or predict who might have the edge? I, I, I would just say um, two things about it. One, I, I know that Sanders campaign and in such a reversal, you know, they learned their lessons for, from 2016. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they have organizations um, in, in California and Texas. I mean, all around, I, I was just talking to one of their top staffers in Iowa yesterday and I said, oh, where are you? He's like, well, I'm in Virginia. We have 99 delegates on Super Tuesday. Yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, they're there. They've put their top and some of their best people all around the country. Obviously, we know their strength with Latinos, which will obviously be um, crucial, if not decisive, in California and Texas. But there are a lot of there are a lot of states out there. Um, and and I again, finally, the looming visage of, of um, uh, Michael Bloomberg will become an actual flesh and blood right. question. So I, th I think it'll be very interesting. I, I think that, you know, Sanders, uh, assuming he does what he needs to do in the next two states, um, uh, is primed to do pretty well. Um, but. Mm -hmm. You know, things can change fast. Yeah. And and Joe Biden remains very popular in a number of these states. And in, indeed, if he does decently well or seems to still have a pulse after a political pulse after uh, Nevada <laughs> and South Carolina, um, you know, those are states that look much more demographically like the Super Tuesday states than, than Iowa and New Hampshire do, do. And there's reason to believe that he could do well. And then, by the way, Elizabeth Warren was in Northern Virginia last night, had a massive crowd. She's been playing very seriously for these places, too. And the case that her campaign manager made in that memo that we talked about a few minutes ago was that the, only these candidates that we're talking about right now have a shot to be viable out, out of Super Tuesday. So I think Every one of these four have a reasonable case to make. We'll learn a lot once Nevada caucuses uh, next Saturday mm -hmm. because that will tell us a lot about uh, the shape of support among Latino voters and uh, older women voters as well. Um, but we'll see. Okay. And believe it or not, there is other news happening uh, this week, which we want to get into. So let's take a, a quick break here on the Bill Press uh, Roundtable. Uh, and then we'll be right back with Gabe DiBenedetti and uh, Greg Creek. And today's uh, roundtable brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters, the good men and women of the IAFF under President Harold Schaitberger, uh, representing firefighters and paramedics all across the United States and Canada, those who are on the front line every day protecting American families. By the way, the first union also to endorse Joe Biden for president and still see a lot of firefighters at his rallies. We salute the firefighters for their great work, uh, again, protecting us, us, all of us, and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, 
a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on today's roundtable. Gabe DiBenedetti, we're from New York City here today. Gabe DiBenedetti from New York Magazine, national correspondent. Greg Krieg, CNN uh, political correspondent, covering particularly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So in Washington this week, uh, sort of on his, uh, they're, they're calling him what, the emboldened Donald Trump, uh, as if he wasn't <laughs> emboldened before, yeah. uh, after the Department of Justice prosecutors recommended a nine-year sentence for Roger Stone, convicted felon Roger Stone. Donald Trump said this is terrible, this should never have happened, he should never have been taken to trial in the first place. It's an outrageous recommendation, uh, at which point Attorney General Bill Barr came forward and said, yeah, we think that's too tough. We recommend a more lenient sentence. We'll leave it up to the judge, but we disagree with our career prosecutors, at which point four of the career prosecutors uh, resigned, stepped down out of a protest against what the Attorney General did. Um, is this just to dismiss, is this another, what do you think, another case of Donald Trump flaunting the law and not caring about the law? And I mean, I'll be the first to say that I've grown increasingly tired, if not exhausted, of the so-called, the, the, the narrative that, you know, this is Donald Trump unchained, because we've been hearing that every single day since he yeah, got elected, right. that this is a new, a new, not low, well, some people say low, but a new phase in Trump because he knows that the Republicans aren't going to call him on it. He's known that, okay, for three years now. However, uh, it is obviously true that he has come to the conclusion that there will be no ramifications now post-impeachment for politicizing the Justice Department this explicitly, uh, which is something that he has hinted at for for a while, but now he's essentially just going out there and saying it out loud. Uh, And it's true. I mean, Republicans in the Senate have, how many times can they say they're disappointed in him? They're not doing anything about it. Right. So, so Greg, we've seen he survived the Mueller investigation. Uh, he survived, he was impeached, but he survived the Senate trial. 
Uh, so it does seem he believes right now he can get away with anything. I, I think, um, yeah, I think that was his belief from the start, and he could not have had it confirmed in a more um, public, explicit way. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, again, I agree with Gabe that that if I hear the when I read the word emboldened, um, and right. I'm sure I'm guilty of yeah. certain um, uh, ticks in my copy as well. But like, yes, I mean more emboldened, more, more, more. There's a, <laughs> Even I, I, more I, 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 I find myself sometimes, and you know, obviously we've been talking so much about the campaign that I've almost come to this point where I'm consuming news out of the White House, almost like a kind of normal human being um, in the sense that I don't follow every, every second of it, but I, but I do catch large pieces of it. And yeah, and it just, uh, the, the way I would describe it is there are new and creative uh, things they come up with um, almost every day that, you know, I mean, whether it's policy, whether it's getting involved potentially in, in, in this Roger Stone case, like stuff that you, if, if I handed you a pad and said, you know, write up 10 weird things that might happen this week, probably wouldn't come in your top 100, but yet they think of them. Right. So then to top it off, when people uh, the first reaction was to say, there's Bill Barr again, just being Donald Trump's personal attorney, not the attorney general for the people of the United States, by, in effect, responding to a Donald Trump tweet. Bill Barr gives an interview with ABC News where he says, basically, enough's enough. He's got to stop tweeting. And, in fact, it makes it hard, if not impossible, for me to do my job. Here is the attorney general. Public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases. Uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. Well, I guess we're supposed to read that and hear that and say, oh, this is Bill Barr showing that he really is an independent attorney general after all. Uh, I don't buy it. Well, I think it was extremely – the most telling part about that wasn't what Bill Barr said in that clip that we just heard. It's Donald Trump's reaction, which was like, okay, uh, if, if it were true that Trump and Barr were at war all of a sudden, or if there was a real rebuke that Trump actually felt viscerally, his response would not be, yeah, Bill Barr has the right to say that. And I'm paraphrasing the, the president here, which I know apparently is not allowed, uh, if, as Adam Schiff might tell you. Um, but, uh, you know – if this were all of a sudden a real break between the president and his cabinet, which we should not, you know, I'm, I'm not pretending to know more about this dynamic than, than is publicly available, but we know what it looks like when President Trump has a disagreement with one of his appointees. We've seen it over and over and over and over and over right. again. That's not what this looks like. This looks like they're still more or less in lock, lockstep. I'm not, I'm not suggesting, to be clear, that this was an orchestrated uh, interview or that Barr was saying something that Trump told him to say. Trump was not upset by this, and, you know, at the end of the day, this Stone decision is still out there. Uh, and, Greg, the contrast, I think, to Gabe's point, where Donald Trump has basically been very okay, matter-of-fact almost, about the Barr's response, he was not that way about John Kelly's response, <laughs> to saying that Colonel Vidman did the right thing, and then Trump went, went back to war against John Kelly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Former chief of staff. 
I, I joked to a colleague last night um, that if, if, if Trump's tweeting was going to get in the way of Bill Barr, uh, quote, doing his job, then Democrats might change their tune and ask him to tweet more. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> y- yeah, I, you know what? I mean, again, all of this is, is kind of theater. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a tweet from the president from 8:30 this morning, right around the time we. I don't want to date us here. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's right, fine. Yeah, right around the time sorry. we walked in here, he said uh, he's quoting Barr. He said the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case, and then Trump adds in his um, um, much more his voice. This doesn't mean that I do not have as president the legal right to do so. I do, but I have not so far chosen not to. Um, in any event. Um, Yes. So, so he obviously couldn't quite keep his end of the perhaps implicit, perhaps explicit bargain here um, entirely. But l- let's just go out on a limb and say that things are going to continue as they have been. I know that's not the most exciting thing to say, <laughs> but um, I, I don't see this uh, um, the current track. Well, being... before we wrap here, let's circle this back to 2020 sure. because you've got a good number of Republican senators up for re-election in 2020 who voted to acquit Donald Trump, Yeah, uh, one of whom famously said, Susan Collins, yeah, I think he's learned his lesson. He's going to be a good boy from now on. So do these kind of continued outrageous actions on the part of the president, could they, could some senators have to pay the price for their vote? Well, well first off, Collins said that, and then a few hours later said, well, let me rephrase that. I, I, yeah, I meant right. I hope that he learned his lesson, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't believe she's been heard from all that much on this matter since. Um, yeah, obviously, this is going to be the main issue in, in a lot of these re-election bids, but every single one of these Republican senators has uh, made the political calculation, which I don't necessarily think is wrong, um, that if they're up for re-election, the first thing they need to do is make sure the Republican Party is behind them or they have no shot at re-election. And in most of these, if not all of these states, that means standing publicly with the president because you can't win if your own party is fractured against you. And so that's, you know, cold political reality. However, uh, in a state like Maine, a state like Colorado, where Cory Gardner is running for re-election, a state like Arizona, even, where Martha McSally is running, not for re-election because she was never elected to begin with, but for, you know, getting back to the Senate, uh, this is going to be one of the only things that they'll be able to talk about because Democrats will talk about it constantly. But let's not forget that this whole thing was political to begin with. The whole reason President Trump was impeached was, as I've heard some people call it, you know, terrible punditry uh, because he was so afraid of Joe Biden that that he went out of his way to to, to interfere or to get try and get a foreign power to to investigate Joe Biden. Now look at where Joe Biden is. Uh, maybe you can argue, of course, that that, that it worked, and that there's just a reason that. You know, this whole uh, thing was a specter over Biden's campaign. But the politicization of of investigations and of DOJ and of the president's uh, foreign powers has been the fundamental question for a long time. It will be a political question whether the Senate candidates want it to be or not. Mm-hmm. It's something yeah. you're going to have an answer to. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the, the irony here, um, given, you know, us discussing Trump as a problem for these candidates, is that. It is the best luck of their life, I think, that they are running in a presidential year yeah. because what they I think Gardner is maybe the best example of this. I mean, my if you say when you said Cory Gardner, my first thought was just um, a cable news scene of a man walking past reporters, um, you know, on Capitol Hill. He said very, very little. 
and I think, I don't know this, I don't cover him, but I w- it would seem to me that he has just decided, well, I'm not going to publicly break with the president and say anything. I'm not going to, um, certainly not going to vote against, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, vote to uh, convict to impeach him. But I'm also not going to, you know, come out on the other side of it. So what I'm going to do is just hope that whoever I'm running against, I guess Hickenlooper is the likely mm-hmm. person, um, whoever I'm running against, that, that Trump will do well here, um, maybe in a way kind of betting against the Democratic presidential nominee, and that I'll be lifted up by uh, by Trump's coattails. Okay. And by the way, the only Republican senator to vote to convict Mitt Romney is not up for re-election for another four and a half years, at, at which point, obviously, Donald Trump will not be on the ballot. And the, the voters of Utah, you know, seem to be okay with all right. this. I was so, going to say, and from the safest of the red states. Precisely. One, th- one thing's right. Uh, it was just worth pointing out, I think, that eight Republicans, sen- eight Republicans that did break with the president in voting to limit his war powers uh, in Iran, yep. uh, against Iran, uh, which shows a, a little streak of independence we did not see in the Senate trial on, acquitt- on acquittal. Uh, great conversation on 2020 on Roger Stone and Bill Barr. And we always ask uh, our guests at the roundtable to come up with their favorite story of the week. We cover so much, and sometimes there's just something that c- catches our attention and causes us to stop and pay a little more attention to it. Um, what do you think, Greg? Favorite well, story of the week. What? I'll go with uh, one of the more recent things that happened because I'm sure there's a better story that I've just plainly forgotten after uh, these couple last couple weeks. But um, it, it, it was on primary day in New Hampshire, and um, I had you know a few hours uh, just to kind of um, you know check out the scene, voting and stuff like that. And I and I met up with um, a couple of canvassers for the Sunrise Movement, the climate activists, pro Green New Deal group. Uh, you know obviously very young and um you know i was just talking to a couple of them they, they, they were in Keene college or Keene state rather uh, in Keene in new hampshire and it was icy cold um you know i was interviewing them with my hand barely sticking out of my jacket you know with my f- phone recording them you know they were like looking at me like where's this guy's notebook is he even really a reporter um probably um and i, I you know I, I think no matter who, which candidate you like, or this or that. Um, I, th- I think there's something nice in seeing. Uh, nice is the wrong word. I think there's something impressive and different happening in this country right now with the young people. Um, you know, whether uh, this is not a comment on whether that's going to be enough to lift Bernie Sanders' the nomination. We've been talking about the youth vote for you know 50 years now, and it's you know the first time it delivers a president will be the or rather the next time it'll be the first time. Put, putting that aside, the fact that these folks are out there, um, you know, talking. One of them, one of these organizers, talked to me about the paralysis she felt, the anxiety she felt when the UN report came out a couple of years ago. And here she is now, just recently graduated, you know, a thousand miles from home, standing standing out in the freezing cold um, in New Hampshire, just trying to get people to talk about this, trying to get them involved in a movement. And, and, I, and I think there's something, um, you know, heartening, obviously, about, mm-hmm. you know, people engaging these issues. And um, I, I think it, you know, maybe it doesn't play out in this election, but I, I, I do think... Um, there is a generation of people who are looking politics a lot differently than even the three of us uh, sitting here. Uh, and that's encouraging. I find that encouraging. Yeah, hey, yeah. why not? Why not feel good for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction here. <laughs> um, yeah. light, and, and, light and dark. Well, one well, of the things that, you know, after after this week, I, I was trying very hard to not only think about politics 24-7, which is obviously a big struggle here. So you're talking about, uh, you know, straightforward uh, encouragement among young people. Well, I stumbled across an article that I'd like to recommend from The New Yorker, this latest issue, um, that was 
basically the question, uh, well, I'll just read the headline for you, was Jean Calment the oldest person who ever lived or a fraud? So, you know, this is not about, uh, this is not about encouraging young people. It's about potentially fraudulent old people. Uh, it's a wonderful tale that I would heartily recommend if you want to break, basically about this woman who claimed to have been the oldest person who ever lived. She died at 122, if you believed her, and it's an incredible investigation as to whether or not that was true. Uh, it has nothing to do with New Hampshire. It has nothing to do with Iowa. It has nothing to do with the various old people currently running for president, but it's a great tale. Well, you're bearing the lead. Was she 122 I'm or not? I'm not going to spoil the New Yorker story, <laughs> but maybe. All right. Uh, well, my favorite story, um, uh, quickly, uh, I studied for the priesthood for about 10 years, so I still have an interest in what's happening in the Catholic Church, and I must say that I am one of millions of progressive Catholics who once one more time was um, roundly disappointed by Pope Francis this week when he was given the option to say yes in very very remote areas of the Amazon where the churches are empty because there ain't no priests and there was a movement to allow some married priests to be married to serve that population uh, the bishops of the, that of Brazil and the other countries voted like 70% to allow this. And the Pope, the great progressive Pope Francis said, nah, we're not going to go there. Not even in that remote area. Uh, it just proves to me one more time that the Vatican, when it comes to human sexuality, the Vatican is still controlled by a lot of older men, celibate men who have no clue, not a clue. Uh, what's going on, whether it's birth control or same-sex marriage or just basic human sexuality. It's just a, a big disappointment. Uh, once again, either in politics or in religion, our heroes let us down. <laughs> <laughs> but enough about the olds. <laughs> enough about, exactly. All right. Hey, guys, thank you so much, Gabe. It's great to see you. Great to be in New York. Greg, good to see you, too. Thank you. And people can follow you on Greg. Gabe on first. Twitter at G Benedetti. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Twitter, uh, Greg J. Cree, I before E. The rules apply. (laughs) There you go. Hey, thanks so much uh, to uh, Gabe, to Greg. Thanks, you all of you, for joining us. And before you go, we ask you for three quick favors. One, please subscribe, if you haven't already done so, to the Bill Press Pod. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just to pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. Uh, second favor while you're there, um, do us a big favor by giving us a great big fat five-star rating. That really helps us get the word out about the podcast. And finally, since everybody's following everybody on Twitter, we ask you to follow me on Twitter, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Uh, that way you'll not only hear from me a couple of times a day, probably, but also get uh, any advance notice of uh, the next podcast on the Bill Press Pod. That's it. Thanks again for joining us. Stay strong. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.